Another day Another dollar Makes you wonder where your money went You can scream Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast This is always one man's view of the changing world The changing times and the things that we can all do to live a better life If times get tough or even if they don't dictate it is almost always the case, at least for a little while yet, during my 50-mile commute between Arlington and Frisco, Texas. Today is December 14th, 2009, and this is episode 336 or 37 or 34 or 35. I don't know. I didn't write it down today, so I don't remember. Um, Friday was a long way away. We had a Christmas party between then and, and then and now, and uh, met up with some folks from the audience uh, over the weekend as well. I'll tell you about that in a second. Um, let's go ahead and knock out the uh, the housekeeping today before we do our show. We're going to do a listener feedback show, and I've got a couple announcements for you at the beginning of it as well. Um, first and foremost, though, uh, let's take care of our sponsors, guys. They do a lot to help take care of you by making sure they support the show and making sure that the show is here for you five days a week. We do the Survival Podcast. Whether I'm at home or in the car, it happens, and uh, their support helps make that happen. Uh, Sponsor of the day number one today, SOE Tactical Gear, John Willis and his folks up there in the beautiful mountainous regions of Tennessee, uh, making the best tactical gear available in the world today. I'll say it. I won't apologize. You want something you can work hard, use hard, and give to your kids when you die, and it'll still be around? This is where to buy your gear. If you want something you can use for a while and then replace it, then you can buy it somewhere else. I really believe that. Alright, next up is the Berkey Guy. Clean water, gotta have it. Don't have it, you die. That's the way water works. Uh, the Berkey Guy gives you multiple options for filtering your water and making it drinkable when it otherwise is not. Alright, so uh, make sure you check out his site. And his site is located at www.directive21.com Moving on from there, hey, get involved with our forum. Um, I wanted to tell you a little bit about Water Forum brought together this weekend. I met with about say about eight folks uh, at the IHOP uh, on I-20 between Matlock and Cooper uh, this weekend. Kind of just hung out, got together, and uh, shot the breeze for about an hour. And it was it was really cool. And um, I won't give out names of people that were there because I don't know if they want full names given out or not. But it was nice to actually meet people. Uh, one of my listeners actually gave me a challenge coin from a unit that I served in while I was in Panama. Um, that'll stay in the uh, cherished tokens uh, a little box for the rest of my life. That was pretty cool. But it wasn't about me. It was about these people getting together. And I tried to not speak anymore than I had to and let these folks just talk to each other and uh, let them do their group thing their way. And that's what's happening. And it's happened, you know, dozens and dozens, if not maybe a hundred times now with little groups all over the country um, getting together and forming community around the Survival Podcast. But that all comes out of the forum. So that's just one more reason to join our forum. Next, check out the gear shop. I told you guys last week there was a special deal, uh, a package deal, and uh, ran for seven days, and it's over now. But uh, check out the challenge coins. I really think you should check out the challenge coins on the TSP uh, store, because I'm going to make Sister Wolf raise the price on them. They're, they're stupid cheap right now, and uh, I'm letting her do that because they're not going to ship till February. Uh, but these things need to sell for more money than, than nine bucks that she's selling them for. Uh, so... Uh, 
I would get them while you can, and I might get more than one. I, I really would might get more than one or two if you want to maybe give a couple of them away, which is kind of the spirit that a challenge coin is all about, keeping one but giving a few away. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You'll get exclusive content available only to members, uh, a massive amount of free stuff and discounts, about $150 value, and uh, it's your way of supporting the show at 20 cents an episode. So with that, let's go on and, and get into the main body today's show. First, an announcement. Um, Ron Hood, who many of you know, I guess many of you know, many of you don't. It depends on where your focus has been for the last 10, 20, 30, 40 years. Um, Ron's been around since, uh, I guess he's been teaching survival since he got out of the Army in the 60s. Uh, So that's quite a long time. And uh, he is probably one of the best-known names, if not the best-known name in the survival industry. He runs the website at survival.com. He has a forum called The Hoodlums. I think we do have some overlap, uh, not a tremendous amount, but some uh, between our forum members and theirs. And uh, I've been working with Ron on and off since meeting him at Dirt Time. And I wanted to let you guys know about something that he's bringing out next year, and you can now put your orders in for them. And he is bringing out Survival Magazine. And I think this is going to be an awesome publication, and it's great to see a guy like Ron doing it. I've actually been asked by listeners if I would ever bring something like that out. I don't have the resources and the time and the experience to run a magazine. I just don't. It's too much for me. Um, Ron does, and he's doing a great job with it. And this is not going to be you know, another magazine for the preparedness or rural living industry where all the pages are, like, you know, really dull and there's not a lot of artwork and it's just basically as cheap as it can be produced. It's going to be full glossy, um, really high-quality publication with great contributors. And uh, I may not have time to run a magazine, but I sure have time to be a contributor. So I'll be a staff writer um, providing uh, an article in every episode of uh, Survival Magazine going forward. And I need your help today. Why do I need your help? Because Ron wants me to give myself a title. And I... uh I suck at giving myself titles, uh, myself titles, uh, maybe because uh, I'm not as arrogant as I seem sometimes, or maybe because I'm just not good at titles. Um, but I need to be listed in the magazine, in the masthead, as something. And I came up with editor of Modern Survival Living, and I thought that sounded a little too, I don't know, too long, and too much like somebody that writes articles about, you know, movies or something like that, you know, like uh, like the lifestyle section of your paper. Ron said, what about um, editor Urban Survival? And I, I don't know. I don't feel urban. I don't live urban. I live suburban, and I'm moving to rural, if not remote in a couple months. So that doesn't seem true to who I am either. So I need the audience's help. Suggestions in the comments of today's show notes uh, at the survivalpodcast.com. What should I call myself in survival.com magazine? Any ideas? Um, let me know. Oh. Next, uh, another announcement that I think is really cool. I wanted you guys to know about this. Um, as you guys know, I'm a big fan of James Talmadge Stevens and his, re- his book, uh, Making the Best of Basics, uh, sold like 800,000 copies prior to its latest printing. It's out on its new printing. It's doing very well. I've recommended it. Hundreds and hundreds of you guys have bought copies of that book uh, off of my site, by the way, and and thank you for that. Um, But James has a new book coming out early in the year. 
It's going to be a collaborative effort between 20 authors in the preparedness industry. And I was asked to participate, and uh, it was a pretty interesting program that he had, but I felt that it, it took me away from what my core is to participate in it the way I was asked to. So what I asked for was a very small recurring royalty um, to write the anchor chapter in the book, and we have a tentative agreement. looks like we're going to go ahead through with it. But here was the thing. I don't want any of the money. Um, 100% of, of, of any royalty that I make off of this is going to be dedicated to the Wounded Warriors Foundation, uh, the, the Wounded Warrior Project. Um, and I think that's going to be a good way for me to – it makes it worth giving my effort to the project because I can make the project better. I can help the project succeed. But I, I don't need to have a financial reward from it. I need to be giving back, and I've tried to set that as an example for you guys of what I think needs to be done. So when this opportunity came up, that's what I decided to do. So be looking for that book coming out February, March of next year. Uh, I'll, again, I'll be writing kind of the anchor point chapter in it that pulls the whole thing together. And uh, know that if you buy the book and support the project, uh, my portion of the, the would-be earnings will all go to help our troops to come home wounded and need help to get back to a place where they can be part of society. So I know those don't seem like part of the regular show, but they are. I don't consider that housekeeping. Those are, I think, pretty cool announcements that I wanted the audience to be aware of. Last but not least, we uh, we made a run at the podcast awards this year. Uh, we lost. We lost to a show that's put out by NPR, National Public Radio. Uh, I guess they have a little bit more uh, reach than I do, and a few more listeners because they're on stations across the United States, paid for with our money, ironically. Uh, not that I'm bitter about it or anything, but uh, if we're going to lose to somebody, losing to somebody that's that big, okay, uh, I'll accept it, but I think we can win next year, we'll make another run at it. Next, uh, let's go ahead, and I want to tell you about a story that well, a listener sent to me, it's not really a question, uh, but this is pretty interesting, and I'll give you guys a link to the story if you want to see it, uh, but up in um, Canada, there's an island off the coast of New Brunswick, all right, and the island is called Prince Edward Island. Now, what's unique about this island, it, it's an island. And uh, if if you don't have uh, a bridge open for people to get from the mainland to the island, they don't get there. So for two days, um, the bridge has been closed to large vehicles. I think cars were able to go, which is ironic even that you know cars could go and it still had this problem. Um, but no trucks because of high winds and, of course, a high-profile truck, high wind, low bridge across the ocean. You can... You you know, think forward about what that means, truck over the rail into the ocean. So no tractor trailers have been on this bridge for 48 hours. Let's say that again, 48 hours. And the, sh- the grocery store shelves on Prince Edward Island in 48 hours are pretty gone bare. And if they go one more day, they'll pretty much be wiped out. Three days. Now, you probably don't live on an island. So you may be wondering why the hell this matters to you. Well, here's the reality. The food only gets to your store one way. Now, there might be multiple roads that people can take to get to your city, but there's one system of transportation that brings supplies to your store for the last leg of it, and that's the trucks. And then there's one big giant system that helps get everything consolidated together internationally, which is air and freight. 
And if either one of those break down, you end up in the same situation these people on Prince Edward Island are in right now. And it's only taken 48 hours. I think that it's extremely important when we talk about food storage to look at these little events like this and understand you're not crazy for having 30, 60, 90 or more days of food in your home. 48 hours and it's getting tough to find food. And I know what it's go- what's going on out there right now. If you go to a grocery store, you'll find something to eat for now. But all the stuff that you normally eat, that everybody else normally eats, you won't find it. Why? It is gone. Because that's what people buy first, the stuff that they would buy anyway. Which, of course, is what we tell you you should be storing, right? So, <clears throat> make sure that you are storing some food. Make sure that's part of what you do, that it's not just about being tactical and, and all this other stuff and primitive skills. Make sure you have some food storage. There could be no better uh, little jostle there, and the guy that sent me that's name was Brent. I'm still getting used to using people's names like this. Alright, now, um, next email came to me from a guy named Matt. Matt lives three hours from the closest places where he can find guided trips for big game hunting. Um, his family that knows about hunting lives all across the nation and are not accessible to him. He wants to get started hunting. These guided trips that he's found are expensive, so he's not really keen on them. He, he just needs to kind of know, how do I get started hunting? Um, I'll tell you what. The place to start is with small game environments. You'll find that it's a lot easier to find places to hunt if you uh, are looking to shoot squirrels or rabbits. And you didn't tell me what part of the country you live in, so I can't be more specific, but small game and birds. Um, dove hunting, if you live anywhere where doves are common, uh, dove season's way over and you're looking at it next year, but, you know, go go find a good ski range, brush up with a shotgun, you know, take, maybe take some lessons shooting the shotgun, um, shooting skeet and shooting sporting clays. I think it'd be a good way to get kind of that, that mentality in. And it's really not that hard to find fields. Uh, where it's safe and legal to shoot a shotgun where you can shoot doves. Uh, a lot of farmers that would charge you a lease fee to shoot deer will welcome you in the summertime to shoot groundhogs or any other varmints they might have. In the fall, they'll probably be more than happy for you to shoot the, the squirrels that are raiding their cornfields and their grain bins and shoot rabbits and things like that. Uh, you can hunt rabbits with a shotgun. You can hunt them with a rifle, .22. Uh, same with, with the squirrels. So I would start with small game. And if you look back at the history of America before hunting became a major industry and a major business and you had to pay to do everything and, and everything was about guided trips and drawing special permits and, and, and things like that, and people actually hunted to put food on the table, every single young person in America, I won't say young boy because some women definitely enjoyed hunting uh, all the way back to being a young girl, um, but every single person that came up in this country learning to hunt and shoot started out with small game. And the most widely hunted game in America uh, up until very recent times was the gray squirrel. Because uh, squirrels are plentiful. Uh, they breed like rats because essentially that's kind of sort of what they are. Don't let that deter you from eating them because they taste really, really good. And uh, you can hunt their populations way down. And as long as you give them time off, they repopulate rather well. It's uh, it's actually, if you follow mar- uh, modern season and bag limits, almost impossible to worry about hunting squirrel populations too heavily. And 
and even though the limits are very liberal. So that would be a great place to start is with small game. I would also see if you could find any gun clubs or rifle clubs or rotting gun clubs in your area. A lot of them are basically bar rooms with some social involvement with each other. A lot of them actually get involved in some community activism things. Uh, They may be a little bit expensive to join in some situations and dirt cheap in others depending on where you are and how upscale they are. Stay away from the upscale ones. I'd look for a blue collar type of organization and uh, just know that when you first join, uh, you're not going to get invited by uh, you know Bob, Pete and Ron to three different great places to hunt on day one. It's like any other social thing. You'll have to go get involved, uh, start meeting people. Don't even bring up hunting. Bring up shooting at first because that's something people can do together easily. You're not giving away secret. You know, you understand that people that have great places to hunt, those are closely guarded secrets that get shared with family and close friends only, and they don't share that information until they know it's a trusted person that's not going to go shooting their mouth off, you know, on a public discussion forum. Hey, there's a great little piece of land you can hunt over, and all of a sudden it's not great anymore. But that's what I would do. Try to make friends that can eventually turn into mentors. And I don't think that you should look at it quite that cut and dry. The reality is we should all be seeking friends and community around people with like-minded interests. Your interests on some level are firearms and hunting. Go where those people are and let nature take its course from there. Don't walk through the place like kind of going like, who's the best guy with the you know that I can find and, and, and help me get... No, no. Go find friends. Go find friends in that environment and, and it will take its course from there. Let people know, yeah, I'm looking for a place to hunt small game. Maybe the fifth or sixth time that you go to a place like that. Uh, and uh, you'll, you'll get a lot of help, especially, I mean, in Texas, it might be hard to uh, to get to hunt deer free anywhere anymore. Uh, the public lands that are available are really overhunted and uh, are not the best to begin with. And then, you know, like you say, paying somebody for a guided trip or even a lease is pretty expensive. Uh, but there's a lot of ranchers out there. If you wanted to, you know, spend some time on their ranch once they trust you to not do anything you're not supposed to, shooting jackrabbits, hey, man, the, the door's wide open. Hog hunting as well on a lot of ranches in the south. Uh, the hogs are a problem. They're vermin. And it's not real hard to get permission to hunt them. And uh, I'm actually going to shy you away from any of those guided trips at first, um, especially if they're kind of ranch hunting or preserve hunting, because it will give you a false uh, reality of what real hunting is all about. Now, if you're going to hire uh, a guide to go hunting mule deer with up in the Colorado Rocky Mountains, really hunting for them, I think it would be a great educational experience and probably worth the money. But any of these things where, you know, it's a it's a 10,000-acre ranch under high fence and the, they have feeders out and box blinds, I'm not putting down the guys that hunt there. I'm just saying as a new hunter, you're only going to get to shoot something. That, that's all you're going to get out of that type of a hunt. You might get the experience and the enjoyment and some deer camp camaraderie going on with other people that are there and have paid to hunt, but you're not going to learn much at all. They're going to put you in a place where deer show up, and once one shows up, you're going to shoot it. That's not hunting. That's shooting. Okay, and I know I'm going to tick off some South Texas deer hunters right now because that's the way hunting is done in South Texas. Again, I'm not putting it down. I, sh- I, I go out and, and shoot that way myself sometimes. All right? I don't have a problem with it. I'm just saying that for a guy that's going to not have the ability to go do that often and, and wants to go out and learn how to actually hunt, how to track, how to read sign, you're better off with a 22 rifle and hunting small game at first. I'll give a quick little announcement here today. Um, there is... A- 
little website that I've thrown together over the past couple weeks and an ebook that I'm working on that talks about learning to shoot the 22 rifle and then learning to use the 22 rifle to harvest small game. Um, it's called Mastering the 22 Rifle, and uh, you can get on a list to pre-order it at masterrifleman.com and at the survival web uh, the survivalpodcast.com website under survival resources you'll see a little link that says 22 rifle hunting click there it goes to the same place again masterrifleman.com um, this is going to be an ebook and uh, I probably will be done with it sometime in January uh, I'm doing it concurrently with my my main my main, my main book that's going to be coming out uh, first quarter next year. Uh, I thought it was time to maybe start providing more resources to you. And uh, honestly, going full time with this, I need more things that uh, I can offer to the marketplace. I think it's going to be a great book. And anybody that pre-orders, not really even pre-orders, just requests notification uh, when it becomes available is going to get a 20 or 25% discount. I can't remember what I did. And MSB members, you guys are going to get like a 60% discount or something like that uh, on this book when it comes out if you're interested in it. So check that site out. Get on the notification list for it. Let's go on to the next question. Um, Chris lives in West Virginia. Uh, he has electric heat and a gas log fireplace, but no chimney. This is one of these like gas log insert things that doesn't require a chimney because they don't have one. Um, so burning wood's out. The only thing that he can rely on is gas. The gas comes from a utility company. He's worried mostly about ice storms and what to do for backup heat. Well, the good news is your gas is probably going to flow no matter what. Uh, the gas company, the, the, the electrical uh, needs that they have are fr- pretty safeguarded and pretty safe. And uh, since gas is pumped in a pipeline under the ground, it's not generally affected by ice. And if you look at a, you know, a large blackout from icing, uh, if we look at what happened last year, which, he, which Chris mentioned, we're looking at you know two weeks in some places, three weeks in certain very uh, remote locations. But nobody went without power for a month. Not that I know of. If you did, let me know. I'd like to know that. It'd be another reason people should uh, should prep a little harder. So as far as I know, and um, I'm pretty damn sure I'm right about this, the natural gas pipelines kept flowing everywhere that the power went out during that ice storm. And, folks, if you got out of it, out of that ice storm, without even seeing the ice, um, you must live west of me and... Uh, I, I don't know where else you could live other than maybe Florida where it got cut off and the very tip of the southeast, Georgia, um, southern Georgia and what have you. Because when this ice storm went through, I posted a picture in the forum of a radar shot. And the ice storm at one time, not 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 how it went, not how it traveled, in, in one spot in time, this ice storm was touching El Paso, Texas. In Boston, Massachusetts, it was a line of ice. It was a, fortunately a narrow band of ice in most places, but a band of pink that ran from El Paso to Massachusetts. That's one of the biggest ice storms I've ever seen in my life. And like I said, fortunately, it was a very narrow band. We got everything iced up here in Texas in the Dallas area, but it didn't really. We had a few little places where power went out, but it wasn't a big deal. Kentucky, um, northern Arkansas, uh, Tennessee took it hard. Kentucky Farmer, his folks went without power for over two weeks. So this is a real danger if you're relying on electrical heat. But the good news uh, for Chris is that gas log fireplace is probably going to keep going. The bad news is it's only going to heat the general area. 
Mythbusters did a a myth thing that I I found pretty interesting and pretty telling. They took a three-bedroom house, and they set a great big fire going in a fireplace, and they turned all the electricity off, and then they measured the temperature in the living room and in all the exterior rooms in the house. And um, the exterior rooms actually got colder because the air was pulled out of those rooms into the main room and then went up the uh, the fireplace chimney. Now, without a chimney, you don't have quite that action going on, but you still are going to create drafts by making the one room warmer as you pull the cold air to the warm. So how do you heat your external rooms, or do you have everybody pile up in front of the fireplace and burn as much gas as the utility company can provide you? Let me answer this question two ways. One, short-term, acute fix for the big concern of ice storms. Go get one or two good quality with emergency uh, uh, shutoff kerosene heaters. Store about 15 to to 25 gallons of kerosene. uh, Treat it for long-term storage. And... You know, occasionally go ahead and use some of it uh, to to do something with, so that you get some rotation with it. But five years of treated kerosene storage, not a problem. So I would store in the neighborhood of 20 gallons of it because you'll go through it rather fast, faster than you think. Make sure you get a good battery-operated siphon hose, um, siphon pump, because that'll make it easier to get it into the heater without spilling it and causing problems. But kerosene heaters are great. I know people have fears of them, and if you have fear, you can. We have a little bit of a window crack here and there, and you're still going to get a lot more heat. But we used them in Pennsylvania. I uh, used them extensively uh, when I was growing up in Pennsylvania uh, for failures. And... Um I think that you know that that was you know one one type of use that we had, and then in uh, in my house that we had for three years up there, we would use them to heat exterior rooms. And we actually, for one winter, decided to see well how much money could we save with this, and we would turn the uh, the electrical spaceboard heatings down very very low at night, and ran the uh, the kerosene heater in the hallway between my bedroom and our son's bedroom. Never had a problem. We had CO2 detectors there and all. Never had them go off um, while they were running, and uh, it was actually quite livable. And uh, that was a pretty cold winter in Pennsylvania, so I, that, that's your short-term fix. Long-term, you might want to look at having a chimney put in somewhere if it's possible, putting in a wood-burning stove or something like that. You can burn things other than something provided by a utility company. And uh, since you already have a gas log fire with a utility uh, thing, I would shy away from, like, the pellet stoves uh, because if you can't get pellets, you're in the same situation. You're confining yourself to a supply line. So I'd look for something, you know, a little cat cast iron uh, pot belly stove that can burn wood or something. I just saw one at a tractor supply company over the weekend, a little bitty one, for $119. And uh, I'll tell you what, it would have done a lot of good in just about any house, uh, you know, with, with a nice pile of hardwood in it uh, for those emergency times. And even for a long-term shit at the fan, it would do a lot of good. So that's my recommendation there. Super long-term and sustainable. You might want to look at building a greenhouse on the uh, on the sunny side of your home and uh, creating some ducting and doing some passive solar heating and things like that. Uh, I don't know your situation. You can give me enough detail, though, I know whether or not you have those options. For all I know, you could be in a row house uh, where you can't do that. Uh, but those are just some ideas that I have for you there. But I would definitely get some level of backup heat beyond your gas fireplace because it only 
only using one room, and that's the big reason there uh, for your short-term outages. I'll tell you a little quick story. I keep forgetting to tell you that this made me remember. Uh, not this weekend, but last weekend. We're all sitting at home. It was about 10.30 on a, a Friday, I guess it was. Maybe it was Saturday night. My son was home from work, and we were watching TV. And the power went out. And the forecast overnight was the temperature was going to go down to like 24 degrees, which uh, some of you guys are laughing at me. But for North Texas, uh, that's about as cold as we get in in, in December ever. And uh, so it's going to be a cold night if we didn't have power come back on. And uh, we didn't really feel like firing up the generator or anything like that because there wasn't a storm or anything. We had no idea why the power went out, but the off chance was it might not come back on. Now, what was cool is to see your preparedness in action. My son was upstairs. He immediately grabbed one of the Sylvania power failure lights that we have plugged in the hallway up there. I grabbed the one out of the kitchen, went in and grabbed one of the LED lanterns, handed that light to my wife, and took the lantern. She takes that light and pulls out the other lanterns, lights a few candles. As a guy on a motorcycle puts my heart in my throat by cutting in between traffic like an idiot. Um, lights a few candles. I go out in the garage. Sun comes out and helps me get one of the fire starter logs and a big pile of wood, immediately get a fire going in the fireplace, and close all the, the, the doors to the adjoining rooms to keep the living room warm and minimize the impact of pulling the air out of those rooms. This all happened in about five minutes without anybody saying anything to anybody other than, that's going to be cold tonight, we might need a fire. I think that was what was said. And here's this light, honey. I'll get this. You get that. That was it. And everything just went. And if the power had stayed off all night, we probably would have never fired up the generator for a little outage like that. We weren't going to go out, you know, in the cold, in the dark doing it. We could have went out, and if it would have been an extended outage, got everything up and running in the morning. Because it wasn't worth it. It wasn't necessary. We would, you know, the next step was go back in my office, and I have our our, um, our uh, sleeping bags rolled up on top of a bookshelf uh, in my office. I would have pulled down three sleeping bags. Uh, we would have been couching it for the night in front of the fireplace. Uh, by the time the power came back on, we were even kicked back and uh, with our LED lanterns and a couple books out, and uh, we're getting ready to just sit back and read some books and, and shoot the breeze as a family, and um, that took about 25 minutes and the power came back on. So uh, we had the fire roaring by then, and uh, then we watched some TV for the rest of the night. But it was it was a cool little drill, and I never expected that we were really going to go through the night under those circumstances with the power out. But you never know, so we need to be prepared. But this is why you do this stuff, folks. So that when it happens, everybody just knows what to do. And uh, I was real proud of my wife and my son uh, for their part in that. It was really cool. I wanted to share that with you. I just kept forgetting about it. Um, next question comes from Jason. Jason says, do greenhouse panels need to be clear? He sees a lot of them they are kind of opaque or kind of milky white. Um, and then he's found some very inexpensive tinted corrugated plastic. I guess probably Home Depot or Lowe's would be my guess. He didn't tell me, but that's probably where he's found this stuff. And I know what it is. It's the stuff that you basically, like if you're building a, a porch cover with, you put this plastic up there, and uh, instead of being crystal clear, it's a little bit smoky gray so that the sun doesn't beat on you as hard. Um, and can you use that for a greenhouse? I guess you could, but I would not, and I'll tell you why. Um, 
ask your supplier, Home Depot, Lowe's, wherever you're at, you know, Payless, Cashways, whoever you're dealing with that's selling this stuff, if they can order for you, probably from the same company, panels just like those that are made for doing greenhouses. They're kind of a slightly opaque, whitish, you know, filtered light version of the uh, of the corrugated plastic. I think that's a great construction material. It's a little bit heavier duty than the stuff that's uh, that's made just for a roof. If you feel it, you'll feel a little bit more weight to it. It's not much more expensive. It's probably 10% more expensive, if I remember right. There's a brand name of it that's sold at Lowe's. I can't remember the brand name now. I'll uh, I'll find out for you today at lunchtime. I'm going to have to go buy Lowe's anyway and let you know on tomorrow's show. But that's what I would use. Build a good solid wood frame and use that. And that's what I actually plan to use. When I build my greenhouse, my permanent greenhouse that I'll have when we move up to Arkansas for uh, both greenhouse use and for my aquaponics operation that I'll be putting together up there. And I think that's a great material to use. Everybody that I've talked to that's used it seems very happy with it. Let's talk a little bit about the crystal clear versus kind of filtered. You don't want crystal clear in a, in a, in a greenhouse in a lot of situations. Um, in some, it's okay, especially some that maybe you're doing one wall of glass with like real glass uh, windows or something like that, where it's built more like a sunroom. Uh, but when you're doing the roof, the, the all four sides, or every side except the south side, because south side's pointless half clear anyway, the sun never comes through there. Uh, something I never thought about, but Bill Mollison mentioned in a lecture, and I went, oh, duh. Don't really need a glass south wall in a, in a greenhouse. Better off making it black and turning, you know, building out of concrete and making it into a heat sink so that the heat that's gained during the day stays overnight. So Bill Mollison gets the credit for pointing that one out to me. Um, but that's, I, I, you really want to use something that's made for greenhouses. They actually do filter the light, and they keep the light from being too intense, and they keep your plants from getting burned, but they allow the solar gain. Now, the reason I say not to use that kind of smoked-looking stuff is I don't know what kind of results you're going to get out of that. I don't know what light rays are being filtered out by that smoke. I don't know if it's any at all. I know that the stuff that's made for greenhouses is designed to allow the specific bands of UV rays that are beneficial to your plants through and filter out some of the ones that are not quite as beneficial, uh, thereby you know doing two things at once, increasing the total spectrum of light that's beneficial to your plants and reducing over solar exposure on really uh, bright sunny days. The other thing with your greenhouse is make sure you have a way to vent it from the roof on the days that it gets too hot. You have to have a good ventilation flow through your greenhouse. Um, and You might want to set up a, uh, an automatic greenhouse vent that runs off a thermostat and set your temperature, and I know somewhere in the, in the mid-80s or something like that uh, where you start to allow maybe even 90 degrees, you start to allow uh, some ventilation out so you don't forget to do it. Uh, on a very cold day, a good greenhouse can get well over 100 degrees inside, uh, no matter how cold it is outside, because of the heat trap effect and because of the magnification effect of the, uh, the clear material and the sunlight working together. Okay, Philip has a question for me. His question is, what's my opinion on public water, and what water filters will remove fluoride? Um, I'm going to have to check with our sponsors that provide water filtration stuff, like the Berkey guy and... Uh, uh, 
the uh, the water the lifesaver 4000 water bottle i don't think those things will remove fluoride maybe they will i don't want to give bad information there so i'll check with the berkey guy today and i'll check with uh with robert griswold today about the lifesaver and whether or not they have fluoride filtration capabilities to my knowledge if you want fluoride out of your drinking water, uh, your most expedient, cost-effective method would be an under-the-sink um, reverse osmosis filter. That will remove fluoride from your drinking water. And that is the process used by most bottled water companies, believe it or not. They get city water. There's A lot of these water companies have this image of you know a stream flowing in the mountains and all. You know, they're down in Houston tied into the public works system. And they just use remote, reverse osmosis to filter the water. So that would be if you're worried about fluoride in your drinking water. Let me tell you how I feel about it. I don't like that there's fluoride in our drinking water. And uh, I much prefer to be in Arkansas living where when I drink water, I drink from my well. Um, I do use bottled water quite a bit. Um, I, I don't fear drinking water out of my tap. But I don't drink a lot of water out of my tap. And I don't like to cook with water out of my tap. I really don't. Uh, cooking, I think, is worse. People have a, you know, the, the concept that if you boil water, you make it safe. Um, if you boil water out of your tap and you have fluoride in your water, um, you concentrate the fluoride. The fluoride doesn't go anywhere. So just as you would you concentrate salt, you concentrate fluoride. And remember, it's... Uh, it's sodium fluoride. It's basically is a salt that they're putting in our water. Now, this is under the auspice that it's going to protect our teeth. I think it does very little to protect the public's teeth. And uh, I think it is a contaminant. It is a toxin. That said, you breathe toxins every day and you consume toxins every day. I think being paranoid to the point where if you're thirsty, you won't drink a glass of water out of a tap is a bit overreacting. But for day-to-day use, I do prefer an alternative. If I was going to stay put, I would probably put in a, a water purification system for my drinking water. But since I'm going to be leaving and going to a place where I'm drinking probably some of the healthiest and mineral-rich water in the world, um, I've decided that I'll make do with bottled until we make that move. And uh, occasionally, if I just have to be thirsty uh, and uh, and I need a drink and there's a glass sitting next to the sink, I'm not going to be too paranoid to drink it. I do think if you drink a lot of water, if you're one of these people that's walking around with your trendy water bottle with you and you drink four or five bottles of water a day that way, I would tend to start using using either filtered or bottled water for that purpose. If you're putting that volume of water into yourself throughout the day and you're not drinking from bottles or uh, some type of filtered water or purified water, I I start to worry about the buildup of, of uh, sodium fluoride in the system. It is a toxin. I don't care what anybody says. I don't care uh, what... You know, statistics you want to bring up, go find a box of rat poison in the store. Look at the ingredients. Most brands of rat poison have one ingredient, and it is sodium fluoride. You don't believe me? Go look at a tube of toothpaste. And look at the warning label. And it will say on most toothpaste tubes, if you accidentally consume more than the recommended amount for brushing, contact poison control immediately. If you sat down and ate a tube of fluoride toothpaste, you will die. It will kill you. That's, there's, it cannot be disputed. Um, 
people that maybe need extra fluoride when they want something with higher fluoride content than is available in toothpaste paste, uh, off the shelf need to get prescription toothpaste. It's a controlled substance uh, to a degree with, with a certain uh, percentage. Once you go over a certain percentage of fluoride, it's controlled. You have to go to a pharmacist with a prescription to get your hands on it because it can be dangerous. Now, does that mean if you drink 10 glasses of water out of your sink tomorrow you're going to die? No, but you're putting something into your body knowingly that you don't have to. So my opinion is minimize it, but don't freak out about it. Eric has uh, another question for me. Eric has a shotgun, keeps for home defense. He has two stock options for it. One is a standard stock, and the other is a pistol grip. He's got a short 18-inch barrel on it. Uh, with the pistol grip, it's really handy in the house for moving around corners and things like that. Uh, but it's almost impossible to, to sight at a high level and fire. He pretty much has to hold it at his sternum and do, you know, kind of the old uh, the old movie scenario where you're firing from the hip, so to speak, uh, with the gun. So he wants to know, do I think the pistol grip is a better option or would he be better off with the stock? Uh, the normal stock, and just, you know, learn to use it well within confined spaces with the stock. Absolutely, I think it'd be better off with the stock. One, I get flack when I say this, but it looks less like some kind of psychopath weapon when some overzealous DA tries to prosecute you for shooting a dirtbag that breaks into your house. If you live in a state like Texas, that concern's probably not a big deal. Um, when you shoot somebody for breaking your house in Texas, they put you on the news, shake your hand, and send you on your way. Not other parts of the country, not quite so uh, believing in your right to defend your own home. So I would, that's one reason. But practically, I think you're better off with a stock. There's a myth about shotguns, and that's I'm going to spray this big pattern. And, you know, if I get it in your general direction, I'm going to get you with some of the pellets. And that's nonsense, especially at home defense ranges. What I want you to do right now is look at your palm and make a fist still looking at your palm. That diameter of your fist at most home defense ranges is about how big the pattern out of most shotguns will be. I don't care if it's birdshot or double O buck. That's the pattern you're looking at when you're talking about 5 yards, 15 feet. Which is what you're most like, and you know, think about it this way. Go in your house, and from any point in your house, pace off the longest distance that you could get a clear shot. And you're going to realize that that's probably never going to be where you're going to end up taking a shot at either, and it's still probably pretty bad gone short. Even with a relatively long hallway, we're talking 20 feet for most people or less. All right, maybe 30, that's 10 yards. Okay, 10 yards, open up your hand and look at the palm of your hand, and it's not much more than that. Why am I pointing this out? To talk about its lethality and its grouping? No. To, to, to explain to you that, you know, just pointing it in their general direction isn't going to get the job done. You need to take aim and sight with a shotgun for a defense the same way that you do with a rifle or a handgun. It's just as important because that pattern, if you're six inches off, you've missed. Or maybe you've hit him with one pellet and pissed him off in a non-lethal area and it gives him time to return fire or to charge you. So you're better off with a stock because sighting is always important if you're going to take a shot that means life and death. So go with the stock. And these pistol grips are just not that practical. I'm sorry, they look cool. I understand the cool factor. I get it. I like it. 
But when it comes down to making sure that some guy that breaks into your house leaves horizontally and doesn't kill you or harm your family or rape your daughter or your wife, you want him dead on the first shot. You want him down and you don't want him moving and you don't want him doing anything except waiting for the ambulance and the hearse to show up. Because that's the way, they, you know, I know some people are going, man, that sounds pretty harsh. That's the way it works. That's why you don't break into people's houses at night or during the day or any other time. And that's why psychopath boyfriends shouldn't go stalking girlfriends that have told them to go away. And a million other scenarios where people end up having to defend themselves. If you ever have to defend yourself, you want the attack stopped immediately. You want the fight ended immediately. And what you need to do that is effective ammunition, an effective weapon, and effective sighting. Shot in the foot will not get the job done. Shot in the hand will not get the job done. It may send the intruder into a fit of rage and get adrenaline keyed up to a point where the person you could have subdued physically becomes unsubduable. Takes the gun away from you and kills you with it. So center of mass, stop the threat. All right, Just like you're taught when you take a concealed handgun course. You don't shoot to kill, you shoot to stop the threat. Well, generally when you shoot to stop the threat effectively, it ends up in total incapacitation or death. That's just the, the net result. But the intent is to stop the attack. Stopping the attack, center of mass. Okay? So stick with the stock. Leave the tactical, tactical pistol grip, get rid of it. It's pointless. It serves no purpose. If you, if you wanted to have the ability to have the shotgun in that configuration for storage or transportation, look at a folding stock, if legal, where you are. All right. Next. Um, Craig has a question for me. Craig wants my take on an article in the EU Times, the European Union Times, that says that uh, the government of the United States is quietly amassing a million troops and U.S. Northern Command to prepare for civil war in the United States because they're about ready to round us up and throw us all in these FEMA camps that they've been building for so long that Alex Jones has been telling us about. And uh, the day of reckoning is at hand. America's about to descend into civil war, and there's a million soldiers waiting to kill you. Yes, you. Um, I think it's bullshit. I think it has no legitimate source. It's written like it's sourced. It's not sourced. Uh, the EU Times is not a legitimate publication. It's nothing more than a website run in by some people. Uh, look at it like an online version of, uh, what's that, uh, the Daily News or whatever, uh, the World, we- World, World Something Weekly where they have Batboy and stuff like that. That's all I see this thing as being. It's nonsense. You can't find a verifiable source anywhere. Uh, when you look for a verifiable source, the only thing you find are people using this article as their source. You can't find anything to legitimize this. Look, folks, I accept the fact that our government sucks. I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that if there's ever a population that they would use, uh, populist revolt, and people decided they'd had enough, that they would use the military to put it down, including maliciously and in an evil fashion. I just think that when you see stuff like this, you have to filter it with your bullshit detector, and not a grain of this one gets through my bullshit detector. This is complete, total, utter bullshit. And when it doesn't happen, again, you people that believe it, I'm going to ask you, why didn't it happen? You're going to give me stuff. They're not ready yet. They're just, they were floating it as a trial balloon or some other nonsense. Look, if you can't find a second source, doubt everything. Even me. 
We say that again. If you can't find a secondary source, doubt everybody, even me. And when it's sensational, double doubt it. So I completely doubt this story. I think it's total bullcrap. I don't think it's out of the realm of ever actually happening. Just that the, the article is written from the standpoint of it's happening now, and it's imminent, and it's going to occur. Folks, don't buy into this bullshit, please. Please. This is what gives people that are in the preparedness mindset, that are in the survivalist mindset, a bad name. This is what makes us look like we're crazy. Don't buy into this crap. Um, quick question from a guy named Scott. Scott says, what does numismatic mean? And he spelled it the word new and then the word mismatic. And I think he tried to find it and couldn't find it like in Google and uh, wants to know what it is, trying to do his own research, and uh, maybe some I should be a little more clear on. It's one word, numismatic. All right, not numismatic, numismatic. Numismatic simply means that it's a collector's value to the coin. So if I have a 1964 mint condition Washington quarter, it has a certain intrinsic value, which is how much that silver's worth if I melt the coin down into a lump of silver. And I, and I take that silver and I sell it on the market as silver. That's an intrinsic value. A numismatic value is since it's a mint condition, uncirculated 1964 quarter, it's worth quite a bit more to a collector than the underlying intrinsic silver value. So it's simply a way of saying that something that has numismatic value has some level of collector value, some level of secondary value beyond the material that the item is made of. That's it, nothing more, nothing less. And that's why I always tell people numismatically valued coins are okay but minimize your investment in them especially you know high numismatic value in other words uh, the uh, the very rare Morgan silver dollar it's worth $385 has an intrinsic value of about 16 18 bucks right it's even less than that right now I think it's like 15 bucks of the silver that's in there. So that's all that it's really worth if you ever had to barter with it or liquidate it quickly. And if the economy collapses, the numismatic value is going to collapse along with it. People aren't buying rare coins as collectibles for a hobby when they can't afford food. So I think that it's one type of investment play you can make. I just don't think it's the safe way to invest in metal. You're investing in a collector's market when you put a lot of money into the numismatic value of a coin. You're investing in the bullion when you put most of your investment into the intrinsic value of a coin or of a, a silver round or of a piece of bullion or a bar or anything else like that. So one is collector's value. That's like, you know, you don't use the same word, but... People have old Barbie dolls, right? And the old Barbie doll sold for 3 bucks back in 1960. And, you know, a Barbie doll now, I don't have any idea. I don't have a daughter, so I don't really buy Barbie dolls for anybody. But, uh, you know, sold for maybe, say, 20 bucks now. I don't know. But maybe this old Barbie doll from 63, uh, that might sell for $250, $300. That's a collector value. And if you were investing in that commodity, you're investing in the collector value. When you invest in the numismatic value of a coin, you're investing in its collector value versus the underlying intrinsic value of the silver, gold, or any other metal that it might be made of.
Okay, Eric has a question for me that involves debt, but debt in a way that I'm not going to beat up on Eric. I guess this is a different Eric. I don't think it was the same Eric as earlier. Um, he lives in an old house built in the 50s. Sounds like they might even have the house paid for, in which case I'm going to be even more behind this little home improvement project. Wants to know if I think it's okay to take debt out to do home improvement, since I think it's okay to take debt out to buy a house. Um, If the improvement in the home increases the underlying value of the home, at a, a, a trade-off level. In other words, if the house is worth $100,000 today and you put $10,000 of improvement in it tomorrow, and if the next day you could sell it for roughly $110,000, then that's no different than buying the house for $110,000 mortgage in the first place. So all things being equal, you have money, you have cash reserves. If you lose your job, you can pay on the on the home improvement loan. Um six months to a year without a job at least and still pay all your other bills and everything else is in order, no problem with a project like that because you're increasing the value of the home where you live. If you're going to sell it soon, my rule is more important. If you're going to be there long term, it's even okay if you put 10000 in and you would sell the place for 105 if you lost half of your investment. If it's going to really improve your long term living, the two things he's considering both would. One is there's an old uh, oil heater that works by radiant heat and it's terribly inefficient uh, in the home. He's thinking about replacing that, and then the windows just suck. So he's looking at doing energy-efficient windows. His big question is, which one first and why? The windows. Because you could go put in a much more efficient heating system in, and you still have heat loss from your windows. You also still have cooling loss in the summer. You have worse insulation properties. Your best investment is always going to be on the things that keep heat in the house in the uh, the, the wintertime and keep heat out of the house in the summertime. Because then anything else you do after that will be magnified in effect. In other words, if you once you get that paid for, if you go replace that oil heating system with a more efficient uh, heating system, you're going to find very quickly that that efficiency of that new system will be magnified by the new windows. I can't say the same if you reverse it. So I would go in that order. I would do these projects one at a time. We're, we're into winter already. You, you know, you're not going to have them take out your furnace right now and replace it. So you're going to be into spring before you do this. You're probably not going to do the windows until spring either. Because, you know, think about the winters raging right now and you guys are coming in yanking windows out, putting new windows in. But I would go with the windows first. Uh, I would also take into consideration how long you plan to be in the house. If this is a house you're going to be in for 20 years, just go full steam ahead with this project if you can afford it. Um, If you're going to be in the house for five years or less and you're going to be selling it, look at doing it from an economic standpoint in the way that's going to give you the highest return of investment in a five-year period. Look at what other houses are selling well in the neighborhood even through the downturn. Know that five years from now we may be in a bigger downturn or we may be completely out of it. There's no way to know for sure. Um, But I would be more concerned about the financial ROI if you're going to be holding this property short term. If you're going to be holding this property long term, then I'm going to advise you to focus on the long term term sustainability of the system.
So that's the best way I can answer that without knowing more specifics uh, about the property in question. And with that, I'm going to wrap up today. Uh, felt a little bit rusty today. Sorry if I was, guys. Uh, traffic was a bit insane. Not really idiots today, just like crazy stuff going on around me and big trucks and guys on motorcycles trying to kill themselves. I guess that's a mass clownery. Uh, but uh, otherwise, it was pretty good to go. Uh, make sure you go and buy the site, thesurvivalpodcast.com. Check out all the good things we have for you. Again, check out the gear shop. I think you'll like that. Um, one of the things that I want to like kind of finish up with today, though, is reinforcing to you how important it is to reach out to people, to not be a loner on this thing. You're not a lone wolf if you want to be successful in a really tough survival situation. The people that think they're going to go out in the wilderness, survive all by themselves if society collapses, you're misleading yourself. Um, the collapses that we're likely to see in the United States over the next 10 to 20 years, and I think it's, there's a decent probability that we could see them, are going to be a lot more like what happened in Argentina than some of the sensationalism that we see uh, across uh, Hollywood and across you know fan fiction and things like that. Um, People try to put things back together when they break. That's what society does. There are, you know, kind of the lowest forms of life in our society, and we may end up in a situation where they do worse than they've ever done before, and we have to defend against them. But in all of these scenarios, you're better off if you have people out there you know you can depend on, and you know that uh, that they can depend on you, and you guys have kind of pledged to be there for each other as best you can in any given situation with an understanding of, I can only do so much for you, and you can only do so much for me, but at least we know that we're there for this, each other. The psychology of that alone is a huge advantage in a crisis. So please be reaching out. That's why I put so much emphasis on getting involved in our forum. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. You can scream And you can holler It really doesn't matter Get spent